You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So, welcome to the March edition of Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here again with Ben Simon to bring you the paper of the month and a few little extras as well. How are you, Ben? Hey, I'm good. I'm riding on a high after this month. It was a, a pretty exciting time. Yeah, definite enthusiasm for the Pearls paper, uh, not surprisingly, given it's had a lot of airtime. But I think our discussants are getting more and more interested in some of the papers that you're presenting. So well done, Ben. All right, well, we might uh, kick off. And Ben, why don't you take us through this paper and tell us what you had to think about it and what some of our discussants thought. Yeah, so uh, this month we looked at a paper by uh, Walter Epic and Adam Cheng. It was published in 2015 and it's called Promoting Excellence in Reflective Learning and Simulation, or PEARLS. And it was published in Simulation in Healthcare uh, in 2015, as I mentioned. So the PEARLS paper is a really essential foundational paper for simulation educators and it's frequently noted by new educators as a very useful article to use when first learning how to structure a debrief. But it's also a paper that has a lot of appeal to experienced debriefers because it's got some flexibility baked into it that acknowledges that experts will vary their approach depending on their learners' needs and other factors. So the authors state that they have four aims for this paper, which is to provide a rationale for scripted debriefing, to discuss a rationale for a blended approach to debriefing, uh, to present the PEARLS debriefing framework and guidance for its application, and then to offer some early experiences of implementing that framework in educator courses. So in terms of providing a a rationale for scripted debriefing, they they basically sort of hit you with a whole bunch of references and other articles that justify the stance they've taken that using scripts can actually improve learners' knowledge acquisition. And they then move on to talking about this blended approach to debriefing, um, which in some ways is quite revolutionary. So they succinctly break down the three major debriefing variants that they've seen used in clinical practice, and they break them down into uh, learner self-assessment, or as we'll often call it, the kind of plus-delta approach. What did you do good? What did you do bad? What are you going to change? The second being focused facilitation. So that'll often be through the use of advocacy and inquiry and trying to guide a deeper understanding of people's frames. And then thirdly, just focused teaching, so correcting critical errors for which it's really unsafe to ignore in a really time-efficient manner. And they acknowledge in this paper that actually all of those techniques are going to be useful at different times and that there's not really a one-size-fits-all type debrief that's going to fit all of your learners. Um, so they discuss the benefits of each technique in turn, and then they present their Pearl's debriefing t- framework, which is a tool which breaks down a debrief into four key phases, reactions, descriptions, analysis, and summary. And the bulk of the variability or the time where you might mix it up as an expert debriefer is going to be mostly in that analysis phase. Um, and the learners, the authors argue that, you know, you might need to switch between learner self-assessment to focus facilitation, etc. But after providing a lot of detailed uh, tables and charts that give you a lot of in-depth information about varying educational strategies, they conclude the article by acknowledging that there's a tension in this between providing a structured script for debriefing, but also there's a danger in potentially coming across as so rigid that the tool appears really prescriptive. And so while emphasizing their intent to provide some structure to debriefers, they also argue that um, quote them, we agree that educators should avoid formulaic speech and tokenisms as well as linguistic rituals by being curious and authentic and educators need to find and speak their own, need to find and speak with their voice. Um, 
and it, I guess the other reason that I wanted to feature this paper is that in 2017, the authors and a number of collaborators released the Pearl's debriefing tool, which is a cognitive aid for debriefers to use. So it takes those philosophies that the Pearl's paper has promoted and then converts it in a nice little two-page cognitive aid that you can use within your debriefs. And it's available at debrief to learn um, and also in the Journal of Academic Medicine. Um, so I guess in terms of talking about the responses itself, this was a really big month in, uh, in terms of the volume and the sort of varied experience of people who were posting, which was fantastic to see. Um, if I had to summarize it up, it's pretty much everybody loves pearls. There wasn't a huge amount of uh, discourse or disagreement with regard to the paper itself. There was some minor sort of specific critique, uh, but there was a lot of praise and a lot of appreciation. And I guess the overall themes from the discussion would be that it's a really useful tool for new debriefers, but that it actually has been created with some hidden depths for advanced practitioners as well. And that Pearls provides a really elegant debriefing structure while avoid, seems to find the right balance between avoiding constrictive prescription. Uh, so Warwick Isaacson, who I think is your fellow at the moment, opened the discussion by reflecting on his journey in a new educational role. And he discussed that early brain strain of structuring a debrief that can seem effortless in the hand of someone who's, ex who's an expert, but how useful the tool can be to provide what he calls a cognitive scaffold for his early ventures into the learning conversation. Um, similarly, Melissa Morris discussed how useful she finds it in quickly imparting some kind of standard fa facilitation when she's teaching other debriefers. And interestingly, Nick Harvey-Smith Harvey talked about... Uh, him starting to use it when he's teaching debriefing in the police force, which I hadn't um, heard of people using it in that context before, and he said that's been going really well. And Lawton popped in, who's a friend of mine, and he provided a really beautiful response regarding his thoughts about that conflict between expert and novices and seeing guidelines as scaffolding or a cage. And so he acknowledged that he really likes that in Pearls in particular um, – while it relies a lot on expert opinion, um, that there's some really flexible thinking involved despite giving us that structure. And I guess what was really exciting about this month is I think in the last week, it kind of, for me, turned into sim glitterati bingo where um, we had a whole bunch of heavy hitters, including Walter and Adam themselves, um, you and Jesse popped on, and Mullen from the Center of Medical Simulation, and also a great mix of people who had probably been listening for a while but haven't commented before. So many thanks to uh, Matt Nettle and Christina Chung, for example, for posting their comments. And I thought that was a really nice mix of seeing how the paper can benefit someone who's just starting out versus uh how those who've been using it for a very long time are reflecting on it as well. So I just want to check there, Ben. You just used the term simulation yeah. glitterati. <laughs> it's true, man. I had like my little bingo card out and I was like, I just need a Peter Dickman and a Jenny Rudolph and then I've got my whole diagonal line across the board. We'll, we'll see what we can do for you, man. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> yeah, no, and I agree. And I think um, there were a few fine-grained points. So, I mean, just for me to sort of run through it, 
it's the structure that is the good bit. And I think it's the bit that's reassuring to those early practitioners, that idea about having a, let's set the scene, then a reactions phase, then just go through the facts of the case, and then have some options about how you do your analysis and then have a summary. I mean, it sounds like it's so simple. And yet one of the things that I think uh, about this paper, you know, when you sit back and you think, why is it so successful? Uh, Because if we were to take our quantitative researcher viewpoint, you know, there's no evidence that this is better than anything else, and yet it must resonate with the practitioners because it's certainly cited by a lot of people as the framework that they use. And I think it is this combination of solid theory as well as some scripts that are in there as well as enough of a structure just like Ben Lawton said. So I guess I'm also a fan, which is not to say that I'm slave to it. Uh, I think it's great work. No, I think that's what I like about it is they've been open to future innovation, I think, within it. And we've got two experts this month, so Kamal Bajaj and Michael Magadishian, who are both working at the Simulation Center in New York and in Harlem. Um, And Kamal and Michael have both been heavily involved in the release of the uh, Pearl's debriefing tool. So uh, I'm very grateful for their time to sort of reflect on the discussion for this month. And uh, Kamal has sent me this preview, and it's very much... um, I really like the expert commentaries where they look a lot at what people have actually said over the course of the month and kind of respond to that. So it's a very warm reflection on how important they see Pearls as uh, an acknowledgement of that importance of innovation and an invitation that hopefully um, both the debriefing tool will be used to improve accessibility to the paper, uh, but also sort of looking forward and acknowledging that there's going to be hopefully future innovation in SIM debriefing and that um, this is in some ways the start and uh, we'll look forward to hearing what other people try out in the future. Yes, and I think it's just nice evidence of the collaboration amongst the community of practice. For instance, Kamal wasn't one of the authors of the Pearl's paper, but he or she is making it accessible through a different medium and I think that's uh, great work that value adds and we'll put the link to where you can get that on Debrief to Learn and elsewhere. You're listening to Simulcast. Okay, thanks, Ben. Uh Good work. Look forward to hearing more about Pearls and to reading Kamal's and Michael's comments. So we might go on to our other short reviews of a few other papers. And there is a bit of a theme this month. You're right, Ben. It's all about um, looking ahead and looking in general. Uh, The first paper is called Practicing Forethought, the Role of Mental Simulation, and this is by Snellgrove and Bernardo in BMJ Stell in 2018, March, just published. And I'll be honest, I'm a bit selfish putting this in because I'm really interested in this concept and was introduced to it, I think, by Chris Hicks, who I'll bring up again in a minute. But uh, this is really an editorial, and so as such it's a bit conceptual, but it focuses on the idea that Uh, We, at the moment, spend a lot of time doing simulation and then focusing on the debrief, which is to say that we do this reflective practice, we think about what we should have done and think about what we should do in the future. And they say up front there's nothing wrong with that. But they say that these so-called collective epiphanies, their words, uh, lead to retrospective and episodic learning, and I'm quoting again. And they don't sufficiently acknowledge the place of anticipation and forethought. 
So what do they mean by that? They're really drawing on some of the work that's done thinking about mental simulation in procedural skills, in performance such as music, where people rehearse in their brain what they're going to do. And it seems like the human brain is pretty good then at that actually improving performance in those arenas. So their idea is that if we were to get together as individuals and indeed as a team and we talked through scenarios and mentally rehearsed what we would do, that this might be as valuable, if not more so, than the kind of simulation that most of us are engaged in at the moment. So, uh, and in fact, they quote a little bit of Lewis Carroll in here. As Carroll's Red Queen remarked, it is a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. So their theory is that, in fact, we can generate a whole bunch of learning out of anticipating what we might do in the future. And they refer to this as mental rehearsal or mental visualisation or even mental time travel, which sounds a little bit uh, over the top for me. So as I said, well documented for individuals and in procedural skills, but their hypothesis is that this can be done collectively. So a bit of a conceptual paper, Ben, what did you think? Yeah, it was a really nice reframe for me in terms of thinking about what we're actually achieving with debriefing and trying to say, hey, there's a whole other way of looking at this. I do think in some ways we're talking about similar things. I mean, certainly my experiences in simulation will usually translate into some kind of anticipation because it has been practiced for when the real case uh, comes in. Um, but I can see that there's going to be kind of a different angle at looking at this, but I couldn't quite understand from the paper how I was going to translate that into clinical practice. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with this paper, even though I found it really interesting. Well, it's interesting you say that because that leads us into our second paper. Uh, so this is by <coughs> Lorello et al., including Chris Hicks, who I mentioned earlier, called Mental Practice, a Simple Tool to Enhance Team-Based Learning Trauma Resuscitation. And this is in the Canadian Journal of Medical Education in 2016. And I knew about this paper before I'd read the editorial, so I thought I'd just include it again because I think this is an example of what the editorial talks about, even though the two weren't directly linked. So, in fact, this is a randomised control trial that looks at mental rehearsal uh, versus other forms of uh, training in the area of advanced trauma life support. So I'll tell you what they did. They basically took two groups of uh, critical care or trauma practicing residents, so emergency medicine, surgery and anesthesiology, and they split them into teams of two, which I guess isn't exactly like most of our trauma teams. They're working in pairs only. And then of these pairs, they divided them into two groups. One group got what was called quiet mental rehearsal and the second group was the control group and they got 20 minutes of advanced trauma life support and face-to-face -face learning on both the algorithm and various non-technical skills. So, uh, And then they basically compared the performance of the two groups uh, in a trauma scenario that was scored using a validated uh, scoring system for performance and that was their outcome measure. Now, I'm just going to say a little bit more about exactly what they did because I think this comes back to your question here, Ben. Uh, so for the, as I said, for the control group, I'm going to talk about that first. 20 minutes of face-to-face -face teaching on the ATLS algorithm and non-technical elements of team-based trauma care. But then the quiet mental rehearsal group, I think, is the interesting things. They were given a mental practice script 
So the participants were instructed to visualize a trauma scenario and how they would behave and function in a team while reviewing the scripts. So they actually had to think it through as individuals, but obviously they were allowed to talk to their buddy about what they would do. Again, they were given 20 minutes and this allocation time was based on some previous uh, work that others had published. So just imagine it sort of sitting there with your scenario thinking, what will I do with this head injured patient that's coming in and actually mentally rehearsing it, as opposed to the group who are sitting uh, together actually going through the trauma algorithm and the non-technical skills. So those were the two groups. And then they put them all through the simulation scenario. And if you read through it, it's actually a pretty complex scenario. It was a pregnant trauma patient at 28 weeks who has a high-speed car accident and requires a whole variety of interventions. And they scored the teams using this uh, validated measure, uh, the Mayo High Performance Teamwork Scale. And I won't bore you with the details, but essentially a validated system which rate the performance of the teams. And drum roll, surprise, surprise, the mental practice group significantly outperformed the control group. So there was some, uh, obviously there was limitations to this study, but in their discussion they hypothesized that this mental practice creates a shared mental model uh, that might be the mechanism by which they got their improved performance. The other thing that they did just to sort of as a sort of interim measure was they also used another scoring system called the MMIQ. This is a modified mental imagery questionnaire and it's designed to evaluate an individual's mental imagery aptitude. I mean, I don't know who invents these things, Ben, but anyway, people do. And interestingly, there was a difference between the two groups in these as well. So it does seem like priming yourself with an imaginary scenario does get your brain thinking as opposed to sitting and receiving instruction in something. And to be honest, I think probably that's one of the things that is the point of difference between these two groups, although that wasn't really mentioned in the article. So I think this is really interesting. It gives me some guidance in thinking about how I might start something like this. Uh, as I said, obviously, there's limitations in terms of the kinds of trauma teams. I mean, two doctors working together isn't exactly a trauma team. But I think it raises some questions that I hope some people keep researching. What do you think? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I reckon we're going to hear a lot more about it in the future. I think one thing that kind of worries me a little bit, or worries the wrong word, but it sounds like a hard sell. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna tell your director or whatever that you're gonna offer some people twenty minutes of condensed focus teaching, and uh, the other twenty minutes, the other group gets to sit there and think. Um, it's a pretty hard sell to get people to buy into that. So I reckon there's going to need to be some quality social capital used to actually get that running. Well, it's interesting you should say that because we're thinking about this at our institution, and I guess I'm not thinking about it like that. I wouldn't approach the problem again as a one versus the other. I think it's the kind of thing that is a step on from a team huddle in the morning where you get there and you say, what's your name? Uh, how are you? What role are you doing today? But then you also spend five or six minutes going through a imaginary scenario, talking through what you might do. And I think that would have a number of benefits to it, some of which are related to performance on the first scenario, some of which might just be good vibes for the day. And I think my mode of evaluation of that wouldn't necessarily be uh, as intensive as was done in this scenario or as in the same system. But uh, I think it's got legs, And but I, like you, I'm not sure exactly what those legs look like yet. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch that space. 
you're saying you're going to be interested to watch me <laughs> try it and die in the ass. <laughs> nope, definitely. I'll, I'll be. Um, I don't think you'll be falling on your ass. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. You're listening to Simulcast. Okay, the third paper. Uh, again, thinking about looking rather than doing. Uh, this paper actually was given to me by Henry Goldstein from Don't Forget the Bubbles. Um, just to prove, listeners, that uh, if you want a paper reviewed by the Simulcast team, just tweet it out. And particularly if you um, <clears throat> give us a heads up, we are happy to have a look at it. But this is called Clinician's Gaze Behaviour in Simulated Pediatric Emergency by McNaughton et al. in Archives of Disease of Childhood 2018. And this is from a group um, at Queen's Belfast. In fact, we've had Jerry Gormley from that same institution on simulcast here. So I've been a bit interested in eye tracking, not with any level of expertise, but have done some very amateurish uh, starts on looking at where people are looking in trauma scenarios and there's a lot of interesting technology about this now and so basically this is where the person in question wears these glasses and not only can you record what they're looking at but there's actually little cameras looking back at their eyes that can tell where they're looking at any given time and this technology is used a lot in things like how people look at computer screens they put on eye tracking glasses and see what attracts them it's also used in things like shopping centers to see what kind of areas people look at on shelves to allow them to design better marketing strategies. So medicine is actually slow on the uptake. There's plenty of other industries using this. The background to this was the authors describe how there are differences in eye movements that are observed between experts and novices in other fields, such as pilots and surgeons. And the idea that identifying these expert behaviours might help the novices as it seems to in those fields. So what they did, they did an observational cohort study of pediatric trainees and consultants uh, performing in simulated emergencies. So the team leader in these situations was looking after a four-year-old in VF following a tricyclic antidepressant overdose. So not exactly a simple scenario, but um, complicated enough to get your pulse going, I would have thought. And what they measured were a couple of things that I think are well understood in this eye tracking world, which is fixation count and dwell time. So essentially, how long do you spend looking at a certain thing and how many different things do you look at in a given time? Experts display shorter fixation times and more active visits to most instruments in the nature of, for instance, pilots. And what they decided to record in this pediatric scenario was that how long did people look at the airway? How long did they look at the cardiac arrest algorithm, the chest and the defibrillator? And they sort of counted the fixation count and dwell time on each of those. They also then measured the time to clinical intervention. So the time taken to initiate bag valve mask ventilation, the time taken to chest compressions and first shock. So they recorded clinical indicators as well as just the observed behaviours. So pretty well-conducted study, I thought. So they did um, 27 participants, and of those, they were variably expert. Eight were consultant pediatricians, seven were PICU, intensive care consultants, six were pediatric emergency medicine consultants, and six were trainees. And the results were that 
perhaps unsurprisingly, the PICU consultants did the best in terms of the clinical indicators, but they did observe that they had some differences in their gaze behaviours. They looked at more areas of interest for shorter periods. Uh, they had a higher mean fixation count, which means, they, as I said, they looked at more areas and uh, dwell time on things like the chest and the airway. Interestingly, for everybody probably in a good way, they spent more time looking at the chest and the airway than they did at the algorithm and the defibrillator. Um, I guess we would have hoped that was the case, but it's interesting that people are starting to quantify that. And uh, I just think there's so much more to learn, but this is probably an important technological advance. Uh, what do you think, Ben? I was a bit more cynical, Vic. I, I, um, I thought it was really interesting technology, but I think I'm confused about how that knowledge is going to make me a better clinician in some ways. Like I think it sounds like it's a technology that will be useful in research rather than in education per se, but you've mentioned that you uh, have experimented it in the past. How did, how did you find it helped your teaching? I think it created a level of awareness. Um, so we'd actually put these on the airway doctor. And in fact, I showed this video at Smack in Dublin and uh, they were actually doing a direct laryngoscopy but it was using a c-max so there was also a camera over on the side a little screen and the airway doctor actually talked their way through it and in fact described that they had put the tube in under direct view when in fact they had looked over to the screen and back to the direct view about 15 times in the space of about 45 seconds <laughs> it was quite astounding uh, so I think having a level of awareness about what you actually do probably would be useful. And I guess I'd have to go back and read that literature where they say with the pilots that giving the novices some guidance as to what the expert's behaviour is uh, is helpful because I think you're right. That's a really key question. Is it just that you get better and then you start to do these things or is it that knowing these things will make you better? Critical question. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because for me, the, the the findings of the paper made total sense that, you know, the, the intensivists who do this all the time are going to sort of have moved a lot of that algorithm and um, the baseline knowledge essentially to brainstem behaviours and then they're focusing on the things that we'd love to focus on more during the actual recess. So that didn't surprise me, but I don't know how. So for me as a PEM physician who might do CPR very, very rarely on a kid, um, I don't know how knowing that an intensivist is doing it better than me is going to necessarily help me. Like I get that it's kind of it's a bit like metacognition, I guess, but I wasn't sure how to translate that without just getting more clinical experience. Yeah, is it cause effect association? I guess we'll watch, wait, and see. Uh, like a lot of technologies, I think there is a playtime period where you've really got to define the questions before you can even start getting the answers. And and I'd say that's probably what this article is starting to get us towards. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. I'm a bit concerned that the glasses aren't very stylish at the moment. I think they break a little bit of psychological safety. Yeah, they make you look like a cyborg and not every team leader wants to have that look. And not like a um, stylish, what's that movie? Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Ah, yes, Ex Machina. Yeah. yeah, right. Like it's not like a sexy Ex Machina type cyborg. It's just you're kind of a goofy, yeah, um, lost in space cyborg. Cyborg. Uh, yeah. Also, I think you're getting Android mixed up with cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So our last paper, a bit of a deep dive into some qualitative work here, Ben, uh, is entitled Faculty Development Through Simulation-Based Education in Physical Therapist Education. And this is by Greenwood and Yule in Advances in Simulation, our friends, our hashtag foam sim friends, open access, January 2018. And this is a group from Northeastern University in Boston. And I picked this because I think it's uh, resonated with me for one critical reason, and that is it really focuses on the educators and what they get out of being involved in SIM. Obviously, a lot of the papers we read and a lot of the things that we do, the focus is on the learners, appropriately so. What do they get out of their simulation sessions? But this is a deep dive look at a bunch of physical therapists or physios as we would call them in Australia, uh, educators and what they get out of being involved. And I guess I'll just reflect for a minute on, you know, what how I would see that. For instance, I think I've got much better at giving other sorts of feedback outside of the sim world as a result of my involvement with simulation. I think it's made me think a lot harder about teamwork and those sorts of things because that's what I teach often in simulation. So as I said, it made a lot of sense to me that this is worth looking at. So the study question was, how do physical therapist faculty develop through simulation-based education and are there commonalities amongst educators? Uh, how they did this, and uh, Ben, I hope you've got your Google out here now, it, it was an interpretive phenomenologic analysis. Uh, did you get a chance to look that up on Google, Ben? Oh, look, if I had a nickel for every time I looked at a phenomenological paper, you know, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to give a shout out here. I always feel very on shaky ground whenever I give any of these things. But if you do look it up, it's essentially the study of lived experience. Uh, so the idea about there are important personal perspectives and interpretations that will be different between people. And that's what phenomenology is. I'm going to put a link though in the blog post to a really good podcast uh, on the Key Lime area uh, where they've actually discussed this method. And it gives you a couple of good example papers that use it. So what does that mean in practice? It means they do a series of interviews with their physical therapist educators, and they had just eight of them, but they had three interviews. So it's a very intensive process with each participant as opposed to having lots and lots of participants. Uh, And then they transcribed their interviews. They then undertook um, a thematic coding uh, as per quality qualitative methods uh, and then did some member checking i.e we've got our themes now those of you who we interviewed can you have a look at these and see if that reflects some of your thoughts and i thought the results were not surprising but were interesting so they had four main ones that they came up with the first one was that uh, participation in SBE strengthened their professional identity uh, because as they were teaching their physical therapist students, they were thinking, what did it take me to get here? Uh, what does it take to join my profession? So it really gave them a sharp focus on their own professional identity. Uh, the second thing was, again, unsurprisingly, that the faculty development with um SBE was affected by their introduction and training. So, of course, their experience varies uh, depending on whether they had strong mentorship or different kinds of courses or preparation for their role as a simulation educator. Um, The third one was that they felt they got a lot better at interprofessional educational concepts and practice. 
Uh, and that was because they had, through simulation, spent more time both in collaboration and designing interprofessional simulation-based experiences that they felt they might not necessarily have done without the SBE element. And uh, finally, and I guess probably broadly to describe is facilitating professional growth. So that's probably the kind of thing I was talking about, which is you get better at some stuff that then you can translate into other areas of your educational and I presume um, clinical practice as well. So I thought it was uh, a nice way of looking from the other side, as it were, as to what is the impact of participation in simulation do for the educators? What did you think, Ben? Yeah, I thought it was a really lovely paper and it was interesting because it was somewhat more it was almost like it was a personal a more personally revealing paper than a lot of stuff we read in academics um in that they do sort of go into a lot of detail about some of the individual thoughts and experiences and reflections and i thought there was a lot of value in reading that um and then it was backed up by a high quality method yeah, and I guess that's the advantage of using an approach like that is you do get that in-depth look, whereas if we'd sent everybody a survey, uh, obviously we would not have had anything like the depth of understanding of what went on and what those people's perspectives were. Yeah, it's just so rich and so much more useful. That's a word they love to use in qualitative methodologies, rich. All Does right. they get rich? No. <laughs> Rich and thick, that's how you use descriptions in, uh, in mm. qualitative research. Mm-hmm. All right, well, you better tell us what are we going to be discussing in April, Ben? All right, so we're going to move away from uh, debriefing a little bit and we are looking at a paper called The Evaluation of Learning from Practical Obstetric Multiprofessional Training and Its Impact on Patient Outcomes in Australia Using Kirkpatrick's framework a mixed method study Uh, and it's an open access article so everyone will be able to click on and have a read Uh, it's by kumar et al and published in 2018 Uh, so i'm really looking forward to talking about this one it kind of examines trying to find some hard evidence that a new simulation based education initiative actually leads to clear patient outcomes kind of the holy grail of sim-based research. bit of hardcore outcomes research, none of this fluffy debriefing theory stuff, hey? Exactly. So looking forward to the chat. I'm looking forward to it too. Hopefully we'll get a great turnout like we have done. So just an encouragement for everybody, uh, www.simulationpodcast.com. Go to the journal club, let us know what you think. it's a psychologically safe space, isn't it, Ben? Uh, yeah, we try very much. And I know it can seem a bit intimidating if you've never posted before, but um, I review sort of every post and uh, try to make sure everyone has a positive experience. And uh, very, very appreciative if you come along and uh, enjoy the discussion. And definitely go back and have a read at, at this month. It's been fantastic. And I, I hope the people who posted got a lot out of it. Yeah, me too, Ben. Well, thank you again. Uh, It's been great to chat. And thanks to our listeners. It's Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon signing off for the Simulcast Journal Club. See you next month. You're listening to Simulcast.